0: Welcome to Global Health and Childhood Cancer. I'm your host, Mark Zobeck. I want to give you a very brief introduction to the purpose behind Global Health and Childhood Cancer. Practically speaking, it's going to be an interview-based podcast where I talk to important thought leaders in fields related to global health and oncology about their expertise. Hopefully, this first year I'll aim to release one to two per month. And as for me, who I am, I'm a pediatric hematology oncology fellow at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas. I've some experience working in resource-constrained settings and I have significant interest in continuing to do so. So, at this phase in my career, I really consider myself a learner, and I'm excited to explore the knowledge of the experts that we have on this podcast right alongside you guys so we can all learn together. So, switching gears a bit, let's talk about the impact that I hope this podcast has. The tagline for the podcast is Discussing the ideas in global health that can save the lives of children with cancer. And that seems like a pretty lofty goal. Do I really believe that podcast discussions, that people merely talking, can help save lives? I really do. I really do. And even more, I believe that you who are listening can play an important part in this work. To demonstrate why I think this is true, You'll have to indulge me for a few minutes and walk with me through the history of childhood cancer. Now, this might feel like a random detour, but there's an important purpose to where we're going. And let me say up front, the story I'm about to tell takes place in the United States, primarily because I'm most familiar with U.S. history. Make no mistake, many people from many countries certainly contributed to this story. But for the sake of being brief, I'm focusing on just one part of it. And we're going to really focus on acute lymphoblastic leukemia which is a type of cancer of the blood and we'll call it ALL for short now leukemia was first described in the early 1800s and no treatment had ever been proved effective until the 1940s so we can suppose that survival for ALL was 0 up until that time it was uniformly fatal to every child who had it and in the 40s a young pathologist named sidney farber at harvard medical school in the united states He theorized that an antifolic drug called aminopterin might prevent the growth of leukemia. So he gave it to 16 kids and found that 10 achieved remission. And this is a feat that had never been accomplished in the history of the world. So it's really hard to overstate the importance of this finding. No one had ever demonstrated that a drug could treat leukemia in kids, much less achieve complete remission. For the first time ever, there was hope that this untreatable disease could be treated. So, how did the U.S. medical community respond to these astounding results? (laughs) Well, let me read you the story on the website of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute at Harvard, which is named after him. So, it says, Quote, Farber reported these results in the June 3, 1948 issue of the New England Journal of Medicine. Instead of a claim and acceptance, however, many in the scientific community reacted to the news with a mixture of disbelief and resistance. Part of the reason was cultural. In the entire history of medicine, no drug had proved effective against non-solid tumors, those that involve body fluids, such as blood or lymph. Frustration was taken as a sign of futility. Part of the reason for the chilly reception, surely, was personal. For a young pathologist working in a basement lab to make a discovery of such magnitude, and with little in the way of funds, staff, or scientific equipment, was seen as presumptuous, end quote. So, he made this incredible finding, and he reported it, in the New England Journal of Medicine. And many people didn't believe him, either because conventional wisdom at the time said it was impossible or because no one expected such an early career unassuming pathologist to be so effective. Yet despite the resistance, his findings started a revolution in cancer treatment that is now enshrined as one of the most important success stories in the history of medicine. After he published his article, people started experimenting with different drugs in the 1950s, and by the early 1960s, the first attempts at what would become modern clinical trials were started. By the early 1970s, oncologists figured out a magic combination of drugs that could reliably induce remission in leukemia patients. And then they discovered the importance of administering chemotherapy into the fluid around the brain and the spinal cord, which is a place where leukemia would commonly come back. And this changed everything. With these treatments, more than half of kids were surviving leukemia. That's 50%. One in two. And that's from 0%. No kids. Zero and two, zero in one hundred, zero in a million. Just 20 years earlier than that. And then, with further refinements to therapy, through cooperative clinical trials, high-income countries like the United States boast a cure rate of more than 85% of children with ALL today. 85%. From 0% in the 1950s. I'm going to put on the website a famous survival curve of this process that shows survival improve over time by each clinical trial. So go to the website ghccpod.com and you can check it out because it is just unbelievable. I know I keep saying that, but that's the best word for it. So at this point though, you might be saying, well, that's a nice story podcast guy, but what does that have to do with what we are doing here? Well, I told you earlier that this story primarily took place in the United States, right? And it's fair to say that outcomes in high-income countries similar to the United States have followed this path. In fact, beyond leukemia, if you lump all the kids with cancer together in high-income countries, on average, we cure more than 8 in 10 kids. 80% of kids for all cancers. Once again, just mind-blowing, just unbelievable. There's that word again, I keep saying it, but it's, it's amazing. And I wish we had time to tell the stories of Hodgkin lymphoma and Burkitt lymphoma and Wilms tumor and retinoblastoma and many, many other types of cancers, because each of them features similarly amazing revolutions. But there's something missing from the results that I've told you so far. I keep saying high-income countries, for example, the United States, France, or Australia. These countries are a very small slice of the world, however, and only account for about 20% of kids with cancer worldwide. So what about the rest of the kids? The 80% that live in low- or middle-income countries, such as Brazil, Malawi, or Indonesia? How many of these kids survive their cancers? That's actually a very difficult question to answer, because it varies. We're talking about a big slice of the earth here. And information isn't always reliable. But it's safe to say that in some places, it may be that something like 50% survive, so 5 out of 10. So 8 out of 10 to 5 out of 10 in some places. But in others, it may be that only 10% survive, 1 out of 10, even though we know we can cure 8 out of 10 kids. So for most kids in the world, their chances of surviving cancer is much worse than what we know the medical community is capable of, as demonstrated by high-income countries. Dr. Carlos Rodriguez-Galindo and his collaborators summed this up perfectly in a recent paper when they said, one indisputable truth defines pediatric oncology. The most important prognostic factor for a child with cancer is where he or she was born. End quote. So now, in 2018, a new question confronts the global oncology community How do we prevent children with cancers, which we know how to treat, from dying in most places around the world? The question is not the one that Sidney Farber faced in 1948, but it is very, very similar. He was trying to answer the question, how do we treat kids with cancer? Just how do we treat it? And thanks to his and innumerable other people's efforts, we have answered that question for most kids and most pediatric cancers that we encounter. Remember, we can cure 8 and 10. So now, there's a next logical step. The next question is how do we get treatment to kids with cancer? Not just how do we treat kids with cancer, but how do we get the treatment to them? This is the question that I want to explore on this podcast. It is a question that oncologists are not well-equipped to answer. We specialize in biology, and chemistry, and genetics, and in clinical medicine. But the answer to the question, how do we get treatment to kids, requires insights beyond biomedical science. It requires input from public health, from economics, political science, sociology, psychology, and a host of other disciplines. This is a big, complex, multidisciplinary problem because it is fundamentally a human problem. The causes of the problem, and therefore the answers, come from the very foundations of what it means to be human and to cooperate with others in society. But just as Sidney Farber was met with resistance and disbelief, not everyone accepts the answers to this question. Many people think that providing complex care in resource-constrained settings is impossible. The historical futility of attempting such a thing continues in many people's minds up to the present day. and also. Many may underestimate the capabilities of a group of hard-working people in lower-middle-income countries. Complex subspecialty care is not something many associate with these settings. But here's the thing many of these people don't know. Revolutions of the same magnitude and importance as the one that Dr. Farber started have already happened in many places around the world, and they're happening right now. People just aren't aware of it. These quiet revolutions have transformed how care is provided to kids in many countries and have saved countless lives. So let me give you an example of one of these quiet revolutions. From 1994 to 2002, Dr. Francisco Pedrosa and his colleagues from Recife, (laughs) Brazil I have no idea if that's how you say it because I don't speak Portuguese, so forgive me. But they partnered with Dr. Scott Howard and his colleagues from St. Jude Children's Hospital in the United States to improve the care provided to children in Brazil. They undertook a program of educating doctors and nurses about oncology care, improving supportive care practices, increasing resources available to families, and protocolizing therapy. With these improvements, patient survival doubled, increased from 32% to 63% in eight years. Survival doubled in eight years and they demonstrated that it could be done at a fraction of the cost of high-income countries. (laughs) I mean, if a researcher developed a new drug that demonstrated these kind of results in eight years, not only would JAWS hit the floor, but it would be the next billion-dollar blockbuster. It's just amazing. I'm going to put the survival curve from their project up at the website if you want to see these incredible results in graphical form. You can go there and find it. So, now here's the thing to note. Their results are every bit as impressive as the ALL survivor curve that I talked about earlier. The difference is that these improvements were not obtained by discovering new basic science knowledge or developing a new therapy. Not by answering the question, how do we treat kids with cancer? These improvements were obtained by a dedicated group of individuals answering the question, how do we get treatment to kids with cancer? And this is just one example of the many amazing stories that could be told about medical providers working in countries all over the world. In fact, we've had decades of successfully providing cancer care in resource-constrained settings. There are many people who have presided over revolutions in treatment every bit as effective as the one Sidney Farber started. This isn't always acknowledged because many are focused on answering the question of the first revolution, how do we treat kids, without seeing the importance of the current, more pressing question how do we get treatment to kids? The reality is that we need people to answer both questions. It's a good thing to work towards a day when every child with any cancer anywhere in the world receives an effective treatment for their cancer. To do this, we still need better treatments for many types of cancers. So this requires research and funding in biology and genetics and pharmacology. But at the same time, we need to get the resources to kids with cancers that we already know how to treat. As I mentioned earlier, this requires a broad, multidisciplinary effort, and so this podcast is dedicated to answering the second question by bringing together these various multidisciplinary perspectives and conversation. Thanks to the efforts of dedicated people around the world, we now know a lot more about how to provide complex care in resource-constrained settings. There is, in fact, already a robust body of literature on the topic which we can access. And yet, improvements across countries have been uneven, and similar questions still plague many places. What drugs are essential for adequate care? How do we increase the amount of resources available to support and treat patients? How do we adjust treatment intensity given the unique context of a center? But since many people have grappled with these exact questions and have useful insights from their own experience, it is important that people with these questions hear their ideas. And this podcast is dedicated to amplifying the voices of people with important things to say, so that their ideas can improve the care of kids in other places. And now, finally, we come back to the question we began with. Why do I believe that discussing ideas can save the lives of kids with cancer? Because it is people with ideas who have transformed medicine. Sidney Farber had the idea that systemic treatments with certain drugs could cure leukemia, something that many people thought impossible. Yet this simple idea kicked off a revolution in treatment. And in the same way, many people around the world with ideas about how to improve care, from Brazil to Guatemala to Egypt to Malawi to India, they've not only transformed the care to their patients, but they've saved countless lives. The field of global oncology is bursting with these stories, and as people spread their ideas further, there will be many more similar stories in the future. So, think of global health and childhood cancer as one platform among many for people to present their ideas so that together we can answer the question how do we get treatment to every kid with cancer anywhere in the world? Now, hopefully, given what I just said, it's also abundantly clear that we can't do this without you. Do you have a story to share of how care has been improved in your setting? Then contact us. Our email address is info at pod.com or visit our website www.ghcccpodpod.com there you'll also find transcripts of the shows and you can leave comments if you have something to say you'll also find the cool images that i kept mentioning during the talk you can subscribe to the podcast on most major podcast apps including apple podcasts and google podcasts if you like the show consider leaving a review on itunes which helps us get discovered by others also Consider sharing episodes on social media or with your friends. Any recognition helps. So GHCC is brought to you by Cancer Point, which stands for Pediatric Oncology International Network for Training and Education, which is a mouthful we know, which is why we just say Cancer Point. But we are an organization dedicated to promoting global childhood cancer education. And we have a website, www.cancer. C-A-N-C-E-R point, P-O-I-N-T-E, don't forget the E, dot com, where you will find information about training programs, expert consultants, and other resources that can support the education of medical providers in resource-constrained settings. We're always looking for more resources to share or for people to get involved with our work. So if you'd like to contact us, Cancer Point, you can email us at info, I-N-F-O, at cancerpoint, C-A-N-C-E-R, P-O-I-N-T-E dot com, or search for us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Lastly, if you're interested at all in global pediatric oncology, go join the International Society of Pediatric Oncology, which is called SIOP. You can do that over at www.siyop. online. It's org. They have an entire section dedicated to pediatric oncology in developing countries, and you can join a working group and you can get involved. I don't speak for them, but they're an absolutely amazing organization. So if you're at all interested, go check out PSYOP. Okay, that's all I've got. Thanks for listening, and I hope to talk to you soon. See you next time.